We're back. Today in Ohio took its midsummer break last week and a whole lot of news happened. We're here to catch up. It is Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. I hope you all enjoyed a week away from the conversations with each other, but I missed you. Let's begin. It's the most important story of the year in Ohio, and tomorrow you can finally take an official action on it. Early voting starts Tuesday on Issue 1, the sinister effort by Secretary of State Frank LaRose and Senate President Matt Huffman to fool voters into torching democracy in this state. Let's catch up. Lisa, what did the applications for early voting tell us? Well, it tells us that a lot of people are interested in this election. So through the end of last month, there were 29,336 requests for mail-in ballots across 15 Ohio counties. This is according to a survey done by Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. This was compared to only 4820 in the same period for that weird August election we had last year for the primaries for congressional illegal congressional districts. In Cuyahoga, the biggest request so far, um, 15,400 mail-in ballot requests. That's seven times higher than it was last year. Almost uh, 6,000 in Franklin County, and then dropping precipitously from there, Geauga County, 833 Summit 753, Lake County about 1,440. So this could signal a large voter turnout. There really is no historical precedent precedent for an August election on statewide issues. The last one was 1926. So there was an 8% turnout for the state legislative primaries in August of last year. Remember, that was that weird second election that we had to hold because of the flap over the maps, the gerrymandered maps. And, you know, experts say that absentee ballot requests can be an accurate take on voter enthusiasm, especially in urban areas where Democrats are more likely to vote by mail. And don't forget, voter registration closes today and early voting begins tomorrow. I my mail last week while I was off contained not not a small number of people that are anxious about their where their absentee ballots are. They're worried that they sent in the application. We had printed it in the paper a bunch of times, and if they used it, they're just wondering where is it because they don't want to miss voting. And if they don't think that their application worked, they want to go down and do early voting. So we're going to put together a story explaining to people how they can check their status. But that anxiety is very telling to me that people are desperate to make their voices heard here. They're against this. And I, I wonder if this is a sign of the strategy of putting this in August, blowing up in the faces of LaRose and Huffman. They counted on nobody voting. They counted on some infinitesimal of percentage of Ohioans, largely anti-abortion advocates, showing up at the polls. But if Cuyahoga County alone turns out in big numbers, that's mm-hmm. probably enough to beat this thing back because there'll be low voter turnout elsewhere. The passionate people about this are the ones who are against it. And I've started to see yard signs. Most all of them are vote no on state issue one. As I was driving east on Highway 6, I did see two vote yes, protect our constitution lawn signs. So yeah, the the groundswell is growing. I saw a picture this morning, somebody posted on Reddit of a uh, issue one rally of some sort that took place, I don't know, Lorraine or Medina County. And it's in this big cavernous room and there's hardly anybody there. There's no enthusiasm for the vote. Yes, there's a ton of strength of feeling for the vote. No. So 
We'll have to see. Tomorrow opens the, the polls. We'll have to see how much people line up. You're listening to Today in Ohio. LaRose and Huffman have tried falsely to make this a partisan issue with issue one, playing into that whole us versus them thing that Donald Trump uses so effectively. But issue one would reduce the value of all votes, not just one party's. And we're seeing more and more conservatives on social media saying they will vote against it because they think it's an overreach. Laura, who's a prominent Republican in Cuyahoga County who has joined that list? This is Lee Weingart, who ran for Cuyahoga County Executive last year, and he posted a Twitter with um, a picture of the issue one, issue one no sign in his front yard, said he's going to vote against it. He said, please join me in standing up for Ohio citizens. It's our constitution. We need to defend it. And obviously, we've had a long list of people, Republicans, who have stood up for this, uh, governors and uh, you know, yeah. people are pretty John Kasich, about it. Bob Taft, yeah. Republican governors are against it. Former attorneys general. Yeah. It's- Maureen O'Connor. Yeah. Jim Petro, Betty Montgomery. So it's like people who are standing up for the state and for the people, the one, you know, giving people the power to vote. Did Maureen O'Connor come out against it? That's what our story says. Oh, I mean, I that does not that. surprise me at all. No, I just, I had missed that. Good for her. The uh, Mike Curtin, uh, the former editor of Dispatch, a conservative in his own right, has written a couple of really strong pieces for us about why issue one is such a terrible, terrible idea. And the piece he did this week was about how our constitution was created to give the power to the people that, the, that in 1912, in the Midwest in particular, people didn't trust their government. And so this was built so that the people would have the power to beat back power drunk politicians for the very same reason these guys are trying it again now. This is the this is the chance for the citizens to say no again, as they did back in 1912. It was a powerful piece. People should check it out. It's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. If this effort backfires on LaRose Huffman, Mike DeWine, John Houston, and all the other elected leaders as spectacularly as it could, centrists in the state and those who lean left could receive a massive jolt from it. And the November ballot, Layla, just might have the fuel that turns that fire into, into a conflagration. Why is that? Well, because there are two issues that could very well end up on that November ballot that are near and dear to the hearts of a lot of progressives. And those would be the proposal to enshrine reproductive rights into the Ohio Constitution and also the proposed initiated statute that would legalize the recreational use of marijuana for people over the age of 21. That would also allow folks to grow up to six marijuana plants in their home. And we'll know by July 25th whether backers of those issues have collected enough signatures to make the ballot. Laura Hancock points out in her story that for more than a decade, progressives have lost in statewide elections here. And and those who are in office are so outnumbered that they've just been steamrolled on issues like guns, for example. So if voters approve these two issues in November, it could really help progressives build momentum in the state, especially if issue one fails and becomes the symbol of Republican subversion of democracy in Ohio. Well, we've been saying that for a year. When this first came up, we wondered whether this is such a gross overreach, uh, this attempt to just disembowel the voter, that it would have a rebound effect 
and and Laura Hancock's story makes it look like that could happen. It all goes down to what happens with issue one, but mm-hmm. it's just it's a fascinating moment. That, you know, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Matt Huffman, Frank LaRose, and these guys are trying to concentrate all the power in their hands and leave no recourse, and it could just blow up big time. And I wonder what it means for them. One of the things, Brent Larkin wrote a a column about this this week, ripping apart the Chamber of Commerce of Ohio for endorsing this thing, saying it clearly doesn't represent the people of Ohio. But he, at the very end, he said, no one should forget this, that, that this should stick to everybody that was behind it. And that includes John Houston. He's on the ad. I support subverting the voter and he'll be running for governor in a few years probably we can't let people forget that he was trying to take away their power mm-hmm. what you know it's uh i mean we're, we've been just talking about voter turnout voter turnout is going to be everything <laughs> this this november i mean one one expert told laura that he expects these issues to really get voters off the sidelines i guess we typically see like 15 to 20 percent voter turnout when there are no statewide candidates on the ballot and this could bring out 35 to 40 percent. It's really a question, though, of which 40 percent, who comes out, who who's uh, most passionate about this. And, um, you know, so yeah, far, I know. hopefully it's a, it's a it's a fascinating moment to to be watching politics in Ohio, unprecedented in what's going on. You're listening to Today on Ohio. In the wee hours of July 4th, for some reason, Mike DeWine announced that he had signed the state's two year budget, but with dozens of vetoes. Lisa, what did the governor strike out and what are the big things he left in? Yeah, he made 44 line item vetoes in this budget, which is nearly 6,200 pages long. Among the big ones, he blocked a proposal that would have banned cities from regulating tobacco and nicotine product sales, and that would have overturned existing bans in Toledo, Bexley, and Columbus. He removed a measure that would have allowed college students to decline mandated vaccines for enrollment, saying that religious convictions and reasons of conscience are overly broad and would eventually compromise campus safety. Also, he rejected moves to codify some Medicaid programs into law. He said that that would have restricted the state's ability to manage Medicaid programs and costs. And another big one, he rejected a move that would have allowed more child care providers to avoid the state's star ratings if 25% or less of their capacity involves publicly funded care. The Senate wanted to raise that threshold to 50%. Um, but but pre for Klee executive director Katie Kelly says that sounds benign, but this would have resulted in 80% of kids in facilities being exempt from the step up to quality star ratings. You know, we wondered uh, when the budget was coming in for landing, what Mike DeWine would do about the tobacco thing. Clearly the tobacco interests had gotten into the back rooms of, of Huffman and his colleagues for them to do what they did was just so counter to public health and so favorable to tobacco companies. It made no sense. So DeWine did the right thing. He, he went with kids, he went with public health and he pushed back against those who seemed to be in the pocket of the tobacco companies. And I never understood the childcare thing. I just, why would you go that way? Why would you make it less rigid to have quality childcare and good for Mike DeWine to say no? Did they ever really explain why they were going to reduce those requirements? 
not anything that I've read. And then the Senate wanted to make it even easier. So there's a big question mark there. But, you know, on the good side, he did praise some of the big things that he did. Tax credits for mental health coverage, new incentives and penalties to improve nursing home care, money for affordable housing and early childhood initiatives. But, you know, it's unclear. The legislature could reconvene and override these vetoes, but it's unclear whether they're going to do that. Yeah, do you really want to be on the floor of the House or the Senate overriding a veto to help the tobacco companies? <laughs> I mean, the beauty of doing this in the budget is they all have cover, but if it becomes a single subject thing, you're you're on the line there. And that that's a very risky place to be. We've talked about Mike DeWine not standing up to the legislature pretty much at all since he got reelected. This was standing up for a whole bunch of good causes. Yeah, with the childcare thing, I'm sure that y- you know, it's like the Republican message, right? It's business. It's all, we should all let everything be governed by business and what the market wants. But I've talked to early childhood educators who just say, look, Matt Huffman is against quality pre, you know, (laughs) pre-K education, early childhood. I don't, I've never had a conversation with the man. I would love to, like, what do you have against quality you know like it's good for everyone but i don't understand it yeah it makes no sense it's it just like it made no sense for the tobacco i mean it was just one of those you're what are you guys thinking well i think that one well that yeah, one i know i know what it was sense. it's the lobbyist run columbus they've proven it over and over again and uh they, they, mike dewine at least stood up to him you're listening to today in ohio State Senator Jerry Serino's Orwellian bill to limit free speech on college campuses while claiming to protect it did not make it into the budget, even though he was on the Reconciliation Committee, which I think is hilarious. He's on the committee and he still can't get it through. Shows you how much power he has. But another Serino college bill was passed by the House and signed into law. It's more buffoonery from the state senator that will make Ohio less attractive to smart people. Laura, what does it do? This is Senate Bill 117 that establishes independent academic centers at five of Ohio's public university. Serino sent out this really long self-congratulatory press release about this bill, saying there's nothing like it at this scale in any other state. Maybe that shows you it's not a great idea. <laughs> yeah, right. So he's saying the bill is needed because ideology is replacing the lessons of history on campus. And here's his quote. Leftist ideology has a monopoly on most college campuses that is squashing intellectual diversity and punishing wrong think and anti-woke dogma. So if you can make it through the end of that quote, it, his release does not include the cost of this. I believe it's about $13 million in taxpayer money and these independent academic units uh, one's at the University of Toledo College of Law. There's the Ohio State University. Uh, Miami's getting one. The thing is, Serino in his press release is like one in four Americans can't name all three branches of government. I don't think those are the Americans in law school. Yeah, the, 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 he's the king of the culture wars in Ohio right now. He must think he's going to be the next Senate president. That sentence you read, leftist, he, the minute you use the word leftist, you're marking yourself. An but, anti-woke. But here's the question, right? He went to college, right? And he's still a stark, raving Republican conservative. (laughs) Our columnist, Ted Dieden, who supports this bill, went to Kent State University during the day of Kent State University. Has it affected him into some liberal-leaning guy? The, The idea that colleges 
are preventing people from having conservative thoughts is preposterous. Colleges are big melting pots of ideas. People go in, they're exposed to lots of things. What Serena was basically saying here is that the college students in Ohio are so dumb and impressionable that they can't filter messages on their own. And so he has to make sure to get in and do I, some brainwashing. See, I also feel like it's saying we don't have, we need to make sure that we keep the power for the next generation. We've got it locked up here. We want to take away people's votes for the Constitution, but we want to make sure the next generation doesn't have a chance. So we're going to brainwash them into our ideology because we can't trust them to come to it on their own. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's one of those that, and Mike DeWine signed this one. He actually signed this bill, which is just preposterous. But it's, it's another way of the double speak because it's saying, you know, the bill wants to educate students by means of free, open and rigorous intellectual inquiry to seek the truth. Like who's going to actually argue against that statement? That's just not the actual intent of the law. Right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cuyahoga County Executive Chris Ronane did the hard work and came up with a good plan and an ideal location for the new jail. But the county council, which was furious when Ronane, as a candidate, blasted their idea for building the jail on a contaminated site, appears it will make politics over policy on this one. Layla, how did the first public discussion go down? Oh, man. Well, so last week, council had this two-hour discussion about this proposal and Caitlin Durbin tells us that it quickly devolved into a fight that honestly sounded like it got pretty nasty with County Executive Chris Ronane accusing Council President Purnell Jones of opposing the proposed jail site in his district for political reasons. And then Councilman Scott Tuma at one point told Ronane, the honeymoon is over. <laughs> so, ouch. At issue here is Renane's proposal to buy 72.1 acres in Garfield Heights to create a central services campuses campus that would not only accommodate the jail, but also sheriff's administration offices, parking for employees and visitors, and, and other services like the diversion center, behavioral health facility, and, and, a, and re-entry and job training facilities. But all that would require the county to spend $38.7 million up front to get the full acreage they need for this campus rather than just the portion required for a new jail. And council members said that they had sticker shock over this price because the land was previously listed at a lower price of 22 million, but that was for far fewer acres, of course. And they also said they want to consider other sites that could keep the jail in the city of Cleveland limits. One option would be at Eddie Road and Kirby Avenue on the city's east side, but there would be multiple property owners involved with that transaction, and, and the environmental remediation would be pretty significant compared to the Garfield Heights site, which is already clean. Councilwoman Sunny Simon said, that doesn't mean we can't clean it up. Sure, it'll be more challenging, but it can be done. And then Director of Public Works Michael Deaver responded, yeah, 60 to $100 million more challenging. <laughs> so the discussion was high. You know, the, the idea of cleaning up contaminated land is a great idea. We should do it. And there are plenty of businesses that can use that land. But you're talking about having people that are wards of the county sleep over top of that land. It's a no-brainer that you don't do it. It's going to lead to lawsuits and be all sorts of problematic. Ronane's plan for Garfield is a good idea. And in reading that story, I got the impression this is a petulant council, angry that he embarrassed them because they wanted to put it on top of benzene and just just taking their 
cuts of flesh from him instead of doing public policy. And I got to tell you, the whole story made me wonder again, should we have, should we just abandon this county charter? Because when Jane Campbell, Tim Hagen, and Tim McCormick were county commissioners, they wouldn't have had this debate. They would have said, of course, we're going to build it in Garfield on clean land and we're going to do it right. There wouldn't have been petulance and pettiness. We keep seeing that from this county council. It's not working. Yeah, this meeting, there were felt like there was a lot of pettiness coming across. I mean, they took issue with Runeen's sudden sense of urgency on building the jail when 10 months ago he wrote counsel a letter telling them that they should slow down and take their time making these decisions. That came out during this. I was also really startled to see that they're talking about potentially going back to the toxic to benzene, transport right. road <laughs> We believe in benzene. Lord. Let's get benzene. I, what? Why? Yeah. Why are we taking all these steps back? I mean, that was, I thought, roundly rejected by the community. And the whole thing, of course, like there, there was no time left to talk about the proposal to pay for this project by extending that quarter percent sales tax for 40 years. So stay tuned for that. And I just, I felt like this was vengeance. It's you, you made us look bad. You embarrassed us with big headlines and we're going to make you pay instead of looking at this. This is objectively a good proposal. This will work. It's, it's easy to get to. It's close to most of the police districts. Everything about this is good. And the government of Garfield Heights wants it. So I, it just, this, I read this and thought this is dysfunction. We have complete and utter government dysfunction. I don't dysfunction. know if that's a, if that points to the, to the, the form of government as much as it points to the people, because you could assemble a council that would not behave this way. Except they're ward council people. And before we had elected officials that only represented the whole county. We have city and municipal government councils to represent local interests. We don't need that from the county. We need the county to have the big view and do the big projects they're tasked with. And they're thinking small. When you had three county commissioners, they were elected countywide and they generally had the business's heart. Put aside Jimmy Damore. He's the poster child for corruption. But the rest of them, when you go back in time, they did generally the right thing. And right now, this county council is not doing the right thing. I I do think not having a, you know, council person of the whole uh, at large council person is a flaw like that we didn't think of 12 years ago. Yeah, it's just I, Layla's right. It's the people, but because yeah, of but the, the, county, the people keep getting reelected. I mean, it's not like you can point to one shiny example of in the last twelve years, thirteen years, where you're like, that was the council that really got it together. No, no, I, and part of it's because we're a one-party system, and yes. I mean, it's all dysfunction. But this was this was a depressing story because this is one thing Ronan has done right, and now he's going to have to battle pettiness. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Governor Mike DeWine's office has explained more than a few times why the train wreck in East Palestine is not appropriate for a federal disaster declaration. And now he has applied for that declaration. Lisa, what's the reason for the flip-flop? Well, he's got a couple of reasons, but he waited till the 11th hour. I mean, on July 3rd, which was like the day of the extended FEMA deadline, you know, he requested this federal disaster declaration for the East Palestine train wreck site. He was granted this extension back in March, and then he made another request in June for a second extension, which FEMA denied. But, you know, people are saying, why did he delay so long? Well, his reasons. He said, well, Norfolk 
Southern Railroad is voluntarily covering the cost for affected residents, uh, which is at $62.8 million and climbing. And he said a request for federal aid would take Norfolk Southern off the hook for compensating East Palestine residents. And he also said that uh, he was told that FEMA would reject the request if he sent it anyway, because there's a third party that's liable here. But he says that a change in Norfolk Southern management or an unfavorable court ruling could end the railroad's commitment and and, you know, he said that long-term health effects are still unknown. So um, just to point out, Norfolk Southern has, like I spent, nearly $63 million. They've opened a family assistance center. They've committed to long-term medical compensation with a fund. And they have another fund to compensate people for lost property values. East Palestine resident Jamie Wallace is questioning, why did it take DeWine so long, you know, for him to act with this deadline looming? She says that Norfolk Southern has been generous to people who live within one mile of the derailment site, but she says it's a crapshoot for everybody else. And this is a little bit troubling here. She says they want independent testing of the air, soil, and water. The EPA, the national EPA, and the state EPA have been out there testing every day. So what does she mean by independent testing? And if they're asking for federal government to get involved, are they going to trust what the government tells them? So... Yeah, I think DeWine just kind of caved. This is not an appropriate disaster. No. I mean, this is tort law. If Norfolk Southern wronged these folks, then in court, they will get their recompense. That's the way it works. This is, the, the national emergency declarations are for things where there is no one else to blame. Mm-hmm. It's hurricanes. It's yeah, flooding. It's all those kinds of things that go on. This is clearly one company causing distress and that you have your recourse through the courts. And that's what the message from DeWine's office was repeatedly. But after a bunch of residents went into Columbus and screamed and yelled about it, he caved and he knows it's wrong. He explained why it's wrong. And then he did it anyway, I guess, to save face. Right. And of course, FEMA, you know, has their power to reject it. We don't know, you know, they haven't signaled what they're going to do. They haven't claimed, you know, commented on claims of limiting relief to within one mile of the, of the, uh, of the site. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see, to see how FEMA reacts. And who knows, this one is such a crazy one that, that maybe FEMA will be worried about the blowback, so they'll just say, okay, fine. You're listening to Today in Ohio. There's a lot going on in Cleveland to build a prosperous future, but none of it will matter if people are afraid to head into the city because of crime. We had a mass shooting early Sunday. Stimulus Watch reporter Lucas Dupre took a look at how Mayor Justin Bibb hopes to reduce violent crime with $10 million in federal dollars. Layla, what's that plan? Well, the city recently approved spending this $10 million from the American Rescue Plan Act money to create a long-term fund to help prevent violent crime. The money would be housed at the Cleveland Foundation, and, and it would be paid out over several decades from the interest earned on the investment account and to fund programs that target the root causes of violence, particularly among young people. It sounds like a great way to build sustainability into funding anti-violence program, and it's clearly a departure from the police-centric approach to violence prevention, which a lot of council members prefer, frankly. But the problem is, in my view, (laughs) what will be guiding their decisions on what programs to invest in? Justin Bibb had recently asked city council to approve a million dollars to create a unified plan that would have helped coordinate efforts across 
this whole patchwork of anti-violence programs. So for example, the Peacemakers Alliance, they don't have a huge staff, but they fill a number of functions, including street outreach work, but perhaps they're most effective in hospitals where they spend time with gunshot victims and their families to de-escalate the anger and tension that often gives rise to retaliatory shootings with a little coordination among other anti-violence programs. They could really focus exclusively on that work and leave outreach to other groups. But council let that proposal die in committee back in February to create that, that unified approach. And council president Blaine Griffin said they passed on it for a few reasons. One, council wanted more oversight on the specifics of the violence prevention plan. And and council wanted to make sure the money went directly to services rather than what, what Blaine Griffin called a theory session or academic exercise. So I'm a little concerned, even though I think the 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 idea is solid to invest the money and work with the the um, the return on the investment to fund these programs, but but you know violence is such a complex social problem without any roadmap to tackle it, which is what that million was supposed to create. It's uh, I, I'm concerned about how this is going to be executed. Like I, I we can't. We've talked about this in a bunch of respects, but we're, what we're seeing lately in city after city, including Cleveland Sunday morning when, what, nine people were shot, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, just random shooting as people leave nightclubs. And you've seen it. Philadelphia's had it. Baltimore's had it over and over again where you didn't see that before. And it's almost like people have lost their whole sense of right and wrong. And you wonder, is that because from the top down, we had a president whose the rules didn't apply to him. You know, in Ohio, we've got sleazy politicians trying to jam a, a very bad proposal through the ballot in August. If if you're a regular person and you're seeing that all of the people in power don't play by the rules, maybe nobody plays by the rules. I cannot imagine what gets into somebody's head to just spray bullets into a crowd. That didn't happen 10, 15 years ago. And it's happening every weekend now somewhere in America. Uh, it's a good theory that I that you're putting forth regarding the the uh, uh, top down the trickle down effect of of just you know disregarding the rules, but I I don't know I don't know if that's what's causing this this level of violence on the streets. I think it comes from from poverty. I'm not sure that 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 so many people are paying attention to who's breaking the rules at the top and who's. I mean, I think people feel disregarded, and that that's the thing that trickles down. But we've had that poverty, sense of hopelessness, and and uh, we've had poverty forever, and then something is triggering just this massive, reckless wave of shootings. No one's going to come downtown. I, that, this is this is going to destroy downtowns across America because it's happening so regularly. This what was it at Sixth Street, right? I mean, it was mm-hmm. right downtown, oh, yeah, warehouse district area. Yeah, um, yeah. So you're seeing shooting. It's two thirty in the morning, but still, it's uh, I don't know. It's uh, it's interesting that they're trying to use the money differently. Uh, and they're trying to get more at the root cause. The, you know, the second factor is they got to get more police. To, but there were police on patrol on, on Sunday morning. So what? I don't know. We'll see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That does it for the Monday episode. We didn't get to all of our stories. I didn't think we would. But we'll be back Tuesday with another episode of the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, everybody who listens. Mm-hmm.